2 Kings chapter 2, the title of our message today is Don't Drink the Water. If you've ever been to a third world country, uh, that's a phrase that gets repeated like a broken record. And of course the reason is because many countries outside the United States and Europe do not treat their water for bacteria or other harmful microbes. On my first missionary trip out of the country, I went with my home church to a place called Chihuahua, Mexico. And before that trip, we were briefed on good hygiene outside of the United States. Number one, they said, don't drink the water. And then number two, they said, make sure that you wash your hands before you eat and after you go to the restroom. And then number three... They told us, they said, be cautious about eating food from street vendors or fruit uh, from the street. Well, after a long journey, we arrived at our accommodations where we would be staying for that uh, couple of weeks. And the first night as we got moved in there, I went to go brush my teeth. And uh, we were told that it was safe to brush our teeth with water from the tap as long as we didn't ingest any of the water. Well, thinking about it, still to this day, I'm not really sure how it happened, but as I switched the last bit of that, that toothpaste out of my mouth, you know what happened? I swallowed a big gulp of that water. I guess I just did it, you know, out of habit, but uh, the moment that I swallowed that water, I sunk. I had that deep sinking feeling, you know what I'm talking about? And I knew, oh my goodness, I am doomed. And I can tell you the next two days were awful. I was so sick I could hardly stand up. I got a bad stomach bug. I had a sore throat. I had a fever. In fact, I spent the next two days holed up in a hammock just hanging there praying, God, you've got to get me back home. (laughs) And I learned the hard way when they tell you don't drink the water Church, don't drink the water. Now, as recently as 2014, we've seen how a water crisis can paralyze an entire city. Because that year, Flint, Michigan, changed their water source from Lake Huron to the Flint River. I'm sure you heard about that in the news. Maybe you read about it. But when the Water Works Department began plumbing in water from that new source, residents immediately noticed that their water had turned to a dingy brown. And of course they tested it and it was confirmed that the water had deadly levels of lead and E. coli and all kinds of other nasty organisms had contaminated their water source. And so now all of a sudden 96,000 people are without clean drinking water. And so the governor of Michigan was forced to declare a state of emergency The National Guard had to be deployed to that city for many weeks and months to hand out safe bottled water. And then even the billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk donated over $480,000 to install an ultraviolet water filtration system to the city's waterworks. What a mess. But did you know that according to the World Health Organization today, a staggering 790 million people across our globe do not have access to clean drinking water. So when you go to the tap and you brush your teeth or you run water, 
for coffee or cooking or whatever, 790 million people, about 11% of the world population can't do that. Because they get their water from a dirty stream or from some contaminated well. The problem translates to roughly 2,200 children perishing every day due to waterborne illnesses. Now, stories and stats like that remind us how easily we can take for granted something as simple as clean drinking water. Now, as you study the life of the prophet Elisha, when you come to 2 Kings 2, you quickly find out that the city of Jericho at that time had a major water problem as well. Their water was brackish and contaminated and undrinkable. And as we study the life of Elisha, we notice that this crisis here in Jericho becomes the setting for his first public miracle. So in today's message, we're going to examine this fascinating episode from the life of Elisha. And I want you to see the spiritual connections to our life because Elisha's cleansing of the water here illustrates several principles about the gospel. So as we turn in our text to 2 Kings chapter 2, we'll read in verse 15, and I want you to notice number one, a malignant curse. A malignant curse. It says in verse 15, Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elijah. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. Now skip to verse 19. It says, Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. So soon after Elisha has parted the waters of the Jordan River, he has walked across on dry ground. Word has spread now that the mantle of God's power has now passed to a new prophet. And as soon as the officials from the city of Jericho find out about Elisha's anointing, they beg him to come to the city. And Elisha is then presented with a perplexing problem. Jericho's water source has been corrupted now for some time. The crops are failing as we read there. The mouths of the people are getting dry. And there are even hints later on in the text as we read that the water is actually causing infertility among women. Now, according to the background of this story, it's important for you to understand that the city of Jericho had actually been cursed for many, many years prior to this. In fact, you have to go all the way back to the time of Joshua. And you'll remember that when Joshua and his mighty men conquered Jericho, that afterward, God's general pronounced... A curse on the city. Here's what Joshua 6.26 says. And Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his younger son shall he set up its gates. Now fast forward several hundred years, and we find that Nobody had the audacity to rebuild Jericho because of that curse. Until we get to 1 Kings 16, when wicked King Ahab 
is sitting on the throne in Israel. And we find out that during his reign, a man decided to test that curse and rebuild Jericho. And in 1 Kings 16.34, here's what happened. In his days, Hill of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Ibrahim, his firstborn, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord which you spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So you can see there, this is the background leading up to Elisha's time here. And even though Jericho had now been rebuilt, it seemed that by the time that Elisha the prophet showed up, there was still a shadow of Joshua's curse looming heavy over that city. For the water was contaminated. And so Jericho would be a ghost town unless the man of God could find a way to reverse the curse. Now it's interesting as you read this story, did you notice how the city council of Jericho described their plot? Did you notice it in verse 19? Look at what it says again. Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, but as my Lord sees, the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. What a telling description. Outwardly, Jericho is surrounded by pleasantry and beauty, but inwardly, get this picture, the city is sick, and the city is cursed, and the city is dying. And you know, when you read that description, it's very easy to connect the dots to 21st century America. Doesn't that describe our nation today? Outwardly, look at the United States. We are prosperous. Right now the economy is booming. Unemployment is at a record low. Materially, we are a nation with more goods and technology and medical care and entertainment and comforts unlike any other that's ever been on the earth. But when you get under the surface, when you get beyond all of that outward appearance, that facade, and you look on the inside of the city, on the inside of the nation, you can understand very quickly, friend, that we in this country are suffering from a malignant curse. Think about it. All of our riches, all of our blessings, despite all of that, look at what's going on in our country and consider our curse. I did some reading this week just on What's happening in our nation? And I don't mean to be a downer, but this is reality. The U.S. averages over 40,000 suicides a year. Trending upward 33% since 1999. Think of all the celebrity deaths that we've heard about recently. We're the, supposed to be the happiest, most technologically advanced, most comfortable people that's ever lived, and yet we're killing ourselves faster than anybody else has ever done so. Did you know that on average there are 192 cases of drug overdose every day in the United States? I have a nephew, he's in local law enforcement, sit down across the table and let him tell you about how bad it is in western North Carolina about how people are dying every day because of drug addiction. You know somebody. Your life is connected to somebody that's probably enchained to this very curse. So far... The year's not even over yet, but in this year, 2019, they tell us there have been 283 mass shootings. And they, they define a mass shooting as any event in which four people or more are killed. 
and the year's not even over yet. In the United States, do you know that we are the world leader not only of exporting pornography, but consuming pornography? Listen to this. Last year, U.S. consumers spent $12 billion with a B, billion dollars at online porn. That was more money than was spent in all of professional sports across the board. More than Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL, hockey, soccer, you name it. One Barna study found that most American teens are so acclimated to smut that they believe not recycling is more evil than watching porn. Are we cursed? Well, did you know that in 2017, there were an average of 862,320 abortions? Since 1973, this nation has murdered over 61 million babies in the womb. By the way, it's a baby, not a fetus. It has a soul. It's not a clump of cells. On average, that's 1,100 children every day that we're killing. 61 million since 1973. It is hard to get your mind around 61 million. But according to the American Liberty Council, that would roughly account for the populations of 19 U.S. states, which you see there in red. Oregon, Nevada, Idaho, Colorado, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Minnesota, Montana, and Iowa. Take the populations of those states, and that's how many people, how many babies we've killed. Have you been paying attention to the recent Democratic presidential debates? <laughs> Not even many of you are saying much because you don't want to waste your time either, but I understand. Did you hear about what one politician on the platform has advocated? That we should have government-funded sex reassignment surgery for the transgender community and that we should remove the church's tax-exempt status if the church will not comply with gay marriage. And that's the platform of somebody saying, elect me as president. Now that's just a few facts. That's just the tip of the iceberg, friend. You don't have to be an expert to look at it and say, we are cursed in this nation. And you know what the cause of the curse is? It's not political. It's not economic. It's spiritual. The Bible calls the curse sin. And no, our, our country doesn't want to hear preaching about that. We don't want to go to churches where pastors still actually believe in sin, but this one does right here. And ever since the fall of our first parents, ever since Adam and Eve, did you know that God has pronounced a curse over the earth? And that curse is sin. And that's the reason why our society is crumbling today. It's the reason why we suffer death and disease and depression. That's the reason why, friend, our world is so messed up. It's because of sin. It's that simple. Romans 5.12 explains our problem succinctly. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death has spread upon all men because all sinned. Sin has corrupted the human gene pool and even though our lives individually, corporately as a nation, even though our lives may look attractive, 
We're rich, we're prosperous, we're comfortable. When you get down to the inside, the core, you find out we're corrupted, we're cursed on the inside, just like the city of Jericho. Just as Jericho needed a man of God to reverse the curse, friend, we need a Savior who can rescue us from our curse. So here's the application. Here's what I learned as studying that passage this week. The application is this. Sin is like a contaminated spring. Outwardly it promises life, but inwardly it delivers death. Sin is like a contaminated spring. Outwardly it promises life, but inwardly it delivers death. Number one, we see a malignant curse. But then number two, as we read this passage, we notice number two, a mysterious cure. A mysterious cure. Read with me in verse 20. The Bible says this, Elisha, he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw the salt in and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. How strange. Elisha makes a weird request from the Jericho officials when he asks for salt in a new vessel. Now, Bible scholars, if you go and you read the commentaries, trust me, I did that this week, they have spilled tons of ink formulating different theories about the cryptic meaning behind these symbols. And what they end up doing is basically taking this true story and turning it into an allegory. And I don't want to do that because I don't think that's the purpose. But I think that there is something interesting here. The new bowl, that's a picture of the prophet. With this being his first public miracle, he's a new instrument in the service of God. And then salt. You know that in the ancient world, salt was used as a way of purifying wounds. It was also a preservative of meat. They didn't have refrigeration, but they salted their fish or their meat and kept it. If you read in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 2, verse 13, you understand that when the Jews went and offered a grain offering to the Lord on the altar, they put salt in their offering because that was a picture of that offering being set aside and being purified for the Lord. And so, the idea here is the salt is added to the water as a means of purification. But therein lies the great paradox, the great mystery of this miracle. And that is, adding salt to water doesn't make it drinkable. Can I get a witness? You ever have a sore throat as a kid? And what did your mama tell you to do? Go gargle with hot salt water? Anybody done that before? Doesn't it make you want to throw up? Okay, you ever played at the beach? And you got slammed by a wave coming in, and you swallowed a mouthful of that seawater, and you didn't come up and say, Man, that was refreshing, did you? It's awful. And so, as you read this text, you think, This is weird because it appears what Elisha is doing, instead of making the water better, it looks like he's actually making it worse. You don't put salt in water to make it taste better. How many of you know, after studying the Word of God, you know God's ways aren't man's ways? Amen? 
Elisha, I think, is actually setting up this miracle in such a way to show that the only way that this miracle could happen, the only way the water could be cleansed, is if God did something. And in fact, when you study some of the great miracles, some of the great works of God in our world, you begin to notice that oftentimes the solution that God presents to cure a problem goes counter to man's thinking. It's counterintuitive. It's backwards from the way we would do it. Think of that on the night of the first Passover. As God is sending that final plague through Egypt, He's about to rescue the Jewish people out of bondage. He tells Moses, take the blood of a spotless lamb and spread it over the doorposts and that's going to save you. What? Blood over the doorpost? How can that save anybody? Think about Joshua. What was God's battle strategy for him? Joshua, to defeat Jericho, I want you to march around the city six days in silence and then on the seventh day do it seven times and on the seventh time blow the trumpets and yell and just watch what happens. Now what kind of battle strategy is that? No swords, no battering rams. Think about God's instruction to Gideon. Before Gideon was about to go face the Midianites, a superior force. What did God tell Gideon? He said, your fighting force, you've got too many men. You need to get it down to 300. And then when you go, just take some candles and some pots. That's all you're going to need to fight this battle. Counterintuitive, right? Think about another parallel miracle. Jesus is at the wedding in Cana, His first public display of a miracle And the wine runs out and Mary comes and tells Jesus about the problem and Jesus says, okay, I'll take care of it. And Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever He tells you to do. And Jesus tells the servants, go and fill up the water pots. What's that going to do, Jesus? You see, man operates by sight, but God works by faith. And the two ways are diametrically opposed. Sight says, go by what you see and know, but faith is believing God based on what you can't see and don't know. You know what else didn't make sense to the world and it still doesn't make sense to most people today? God's solution to the sin curse of humanity. You know what His solution was? The cross. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that the preaching of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jew and it's foolishness to the Greeks. God's solution for dealing with the curse of sin is the most illogical, the most hated method according to man. There was nothing more detestable in the ancient world than death by crucifixion. Man still hates the cross today. A couple of weeks ago, we took a group to downtown Asheville. You're taking your life in your hands when you do that, right? (laughs) We went down to the Civic Center to visit and be a part of the Franklin Graham rally that day. And of course, it was a powerful time of gospel proclamation. For all those who went, you know how awesome it was. And there were several, there were a hundred or so people that stood up at the time of the invitation and professed faith in Jesus Christ. But you know that when we were leaving the arena, as we were walking out to get on the bus, there outside at the front of the Civic Center was a rabble of protesters. And I took this picture from the Asheville Citizen Times. Yes, it still exists. 
And I put, uh, I put this up here so you could see that as we left the building that day, here's a group of protesters standing outside. And I heard one guy as he walked by say, Hey, Jesus loves you. And they yelled back to the crowd, Y'all stop preaching hate. One protester was holding up a cross that he had wrapped in the rainbow colors of the LBGT flag. You see, modern man looks at the cross and is offended. He hears about the gospel and all he hears is hate. Here's what Paul says that God does. God takes the foolish and the hated things of the world to shame the wise. He takes the weak and the base things of the world to show His strength. Why? So that when it's all said and done and the dust settles, that we can boast only in the power of God. And you think about Elisha that day at first, dumping salt in the well at Jericho didn't make sense until he spoke the word of the Lord, and then when they tasted the water, oh, it did make sense. And friend, I'm telling you, likewise, on Friday evening, as the skies darkened, and they took the bloody corpse of Jesus down from the cross and put Him in a tomb, the cross made no sense. But friend, on Sunday morning, when the stone rolled away, and the Son of God came out with the keys of death, in Hades in his possession it made a lot more sense then friend I'm telling you that God and his salvation doesn't come the way that man thinks that it should so here's our application write this down God's salvation comes in impossible situations and through improbable means comes when there's no hope When it's all darkness and there's no answers from man, and it comes in a way in which no human can take credit. Listen to this. Just like Jericho, we are under a curse. Just like Elijah, God's way of providing a cure for the problem doesn't make sense from the human perspective. You see, God's salvation comes through death, not life. It comes not through works, but through grace, not by sight, but by faith. So we see a mysterious cure and a malignant curse. Then I'm finished right here with number three. Notice this, a miraculous cleansing. A miraculous cleansing. Read with me in verse 22. And so the water has been healed to this day, that is, when this Word of God was written centuries ago, according to the Word that Elisha... (laughs) The Word that Elisha spoke. Now how many of you would have raised your hand and been the first volunteer to be a taste tester right after Elisha had dumped all that salt in the water? Don't lie. None of us would have lined up to do it, but somebody had to do it. And can you imagine the amazement on that fellow's face when he dipped the cup down, maybe an old gourd that they had cut off and got a dipping out of that and drank it and said, whoo, that is some sweet water. <laughs> wow. What a miracle. The healing of this spring, think about it. The healing of the spring gave the city of Jericho a second chance and saved the lives of millions. Think about God's salvation to you and I when He cleanses the heart, gives us a second chance, and it has given life to untold numbers down through the ages. Friend, I'm told that if you were to go to the city of Jericho today, you could go to 
what is called Elisha's Spring. There it is. Where the water is still pure to this day. (laughs) You could still go to Elisha's Spring and get a drink of that living water. According to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, he says in his historical account that at the first century that Jericho was an idyllic paradise. It was known as the city of palms because in the middle of the city was this spring that fed the city. Here's the application. Here's the lesson. When God cleanses, the effects are immediate, complete, and permanent. You have something that needs to be cleaned in your life? (laughs) Go to Jesus. And did you notice that when Elisha healed the waters, what did he do? He went right to the source. He went right to where the water was bubbling up out of the ground. And friend, do you know that's how God deals with the sin in our life? Man says, oh, we're going to send them through a treatment program. We're going to talk psychology to them. We'll give them 12 steps, although some of those things are good. But friend, it never gets to the source. And the source is the heart. Only God can get to the heart of man or woman. And you know, the Bible makes a parallel between the heart as a spring. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Jesus said in Mark 7.21-22, Out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Friend, listen to me. When it comes to salvation, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And only Christ can cleanse the dirty well, the dirty heart. Listen to what He told the woman at the well. You remember that when they met there in Samaria in John chapter 4? You know what Jesus told her, John 4, 14? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, underline that word, never, <laughs> never be thirsty again. Why? Because when God cleanses, it's complete, it's immediate, it's permanent. And friend, I took a draught of the living water as a child and I've never been thirsty again. I took a sip of the living water that Jesus gave me and friend, I've been contented ever since. He says, the water I give Him will become in Him a spring of life. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, 900 years later, after this event, Jesus went to Jericho. The very city where this miracle took place. And you remember in Luke 19, who did He meet there? Up in a tree? Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, come on down from there for I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus, if you understand that story, was the most hated person in that city. He had defrauded and ripped off so many people and yet he spent one day with Jesus and he was never the same again. He was changed. Jesus took a bad well, a corrupt heart and he transformed it and Zacchaeus was so changed after that he said, if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to go pay him back fourfold. He still does that today, friend. He takes a bad well. He takes a corrupted heart and He cleanses it and makes it new. Let me finish with this. John Patton, probably one of the greatest missionaries that ever lived. One of the great 
characteristics of his life that I've always admired is his persistence and his courage. He believed that God called him to this little speck out in the Pacific called the New Hebrides Island. They told him he was crazy when he first was about to go because on that island were cannibals and primitive superstitious people. They said, if you go there, they're going to club you and eat you alive. While he was there, he spent 43 years. He buried his wife there. He buried his son there. He suffered fever and sickness. He watched other friends of his that went with him die. But he was believing God for a miracle. And critical to his success about reaching the Anawa people who were there was helping them to dig a well. Now those Anawa people had lived on that island for centuries and no one had ever been able to find a natural spring that was not corrupted by salt water. But John Patton said, we're going to do it. And God's going to show you something you've never seen before. Well, these people were held under the sway of a witch doctor. And the witch doctor taught the people that you couldn't do that and that water only came from above when the rain gods were appeased and so on. Well, Patton didn't stop. So he got the, the tribal chief, a man named Nemeki, and he said, we're going to pray that Jesus will send rain from below. And the natives, when they heard about it, they said, this is crazy. It'll never work. The white man is foolish. So he gathered those few together and John Patton prayed. He said, Lord, show these people that you are real by giving us living water from the ground. So they started digging. They dug to a depth of 15 feet and wouldn't you know that the well collapsed and they had to start all over again. Over in the distance was the witch doctor who was cursing their work. They went back, they started digging again. They got down to 35 feet and when they hit the depth of 35 feet, something started percolating down below. The water started bubbling up and he called the chief in. He said, bring Chief Nemeki. And they took a little cup and they dipped it down in the bottom of that well. He handed it to the chief. He said, tell me that's not the best water you've ever tasted. He looked at it suspiciously, shook it around, and then finally downed it. And he said, rain, rain. Jesus has sent us rain from below. And Patton said that when the people saw that the water came, it like broke the floodgates open for them to repent and believe in Jesus as Savior. The next day, the chief gathered all the people around that well and they had a burning. They took all their little idols and they burned them. And the chief said, I've seen the power of Jesus and I believe in Him and I'm going to follow Him. And according to his biography, John Patton said, after that day, it was a new dawn for salvation in the New Hebrides Islands. Friend, I'm telling you, the spring to everlasting life. You believe it today? You need a touch from the Lord today? Friend, He can meet you where you are. He can take your impossible situation and He can bring joy where there was sadness. He can bring life where there was death. He can bring hope where there was hopelessness. Let me tell you, friend, Jesus loves you. 
God hasn't given up on you. I don't know what you're facing or what you've been through. But God loves you with an everlasting love. He showed it. He demonstrated it by sending Jesus to the cross. And if you need that touch today, if you need prayer, if you need encouragement, this altar is going to be open for you to respond right now. You come and you be obedient to what the Lord would have you to do in this moment.